Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen. We talk about pedestrian safety, among other things. The Ontario election has not officially been called, but the campaigning is well underway. We get the latest take from Bay Observer publisher John Best and Mike Drolet of Global National about the next edition of The New Reality, The Road Ahead for Used Cars. It's a very different world in car sales. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Joining us on the line now, Police Chief Frank Bergen. Good morning. Good morning, Sean. And before we actually get into anything, I, I just want to follow up on you having a, an important guest on used car sales and, and that that real valuable commodity out there. The one thing we were just seeing now, and we've seen it, you know, really starting to come into our community, our people are targeting uh, high-end cars, and, and they're having fake accidents and, and different interactions than stealing the car. So that's something is people have to be very cognizant. Of. That commodity is very valuable, and especially if it's a unique vehicle out there, for everyone's got to be aware of that. Absolutely. Now, normally we call this a town hall, but I didn't want to get it confused with the virtual town hall that you have coming up next week. What a great opportunity for us, again, to hear from our community directly. Our police services board and and Chair Pat Mandy have been incredible. They're working with our inspector, Robin um, Abbott. And what we're doing is another opportunity to have a town hall so we can hear directly from our community uh, what is important to them, what what should policing look like over the next few years. And what we do is we do our plan, as you probably know, for a couple years and, and plan ahead for that. And what we're hoping to do is have everybody call in on April the 27th, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. And this will allow us to chart our course over the next few years of the direction of the Hamilton Police Service. Um, So once again, that is the virtual town hall, April 27th at 7 p.m. Something that certainly has been in the forefront of news on this radio station, and I'm sure is uh, you're shining a spotlight even more brightly on uh, the eight deaths so far this year, pedestrian safety, Uh, eight deaths this year, almost as many as in all of last year. Shauna, thank you very much again. Uh, we can't speak about this enough. And, and, and sitting in the front row at Boris Brott's um, ceremony and just that impact this has on a family, an impact it has on a community. But these eight people are people that are not coming home, that are not there around the table. And we have to have these conversations. It boils down to there's many factors here. There's not just one. But we have to look at right from the very beginning, everyone out there, the majority of people listening to this radio are doing everything amazing well, And we thank you for that. But there's a handful of people who feel entitled, who feel that the rules don't apply to them. Every day, every morning on our morning roundup, we're getting the stunt driving. We're getting people going, you know, 100 kilometers above posted limits. Impaired driving, two, three, four charges a day being done in our community. These are people who take their liberties and, and disregard everybody else's. So everybody has to be aware Speeding, distracted driving, aggressive driving, impaired driving. We will work with everybody to make sure the message is out there. Working with our city partners, with the amazing group we have at City Hall that look at evaluating our intersections, our top 10 intersections. The engineering of our roadways, we saw that importantly to do it. But our role is the education and the enforcement. Last night alone, three impaired drivers arrested on our streets. Everybody pay attention. If you see something, say something. But more importantly, if you have somebody making a mistake or doing something that you think you can stop, stop them because it puts everybody at risk. Chief, are there any indications, any insights as to why it seems to be so much worse now? 
I, I don't have the answer for that, Sean, and I think that's fair. I, I do speak at a higher level with all our police within our province. Uh, we have seen coming out of COVID that the driving behaviors got very reckless during the COVID when everybody was in shelter in place and, and obviously doing what they should to abide by the rules of the province. People were looking at open freeways and open highways and open city streets as being a, a racetrack. And we saw certainly starting to look at just total disregard for the rules. And, and there's no reason to think that needs to continue, but it has continued. And again, Shauna, there's a handful of people out there putting the majority of us at risk every day with their entitled approach to driving. If uh, if I might offer you a location where you might uh, want to have some special enforcement, on my way home every day, I drive along Victoria Avenue at Barton, and there are, as you well know, uh, two-way bike lanes that take up one of the uh, the lanes there, the, the extreme right-hand lane. I have seen on three occasions now people who will go out of the lane, their driving lane, into the bike lanes to go up to the light in order to turn right onto Barton. Yeah, Shauna, what you're just saying is what I hear everywhere I go out in the community. We hear it when we speak to each of our 15 councillors in every ward that traffic is their number one concern. This is a community that has done everything right. This is a community that feels that we have to expand bike lanes. That's important. We have to look at that. We have to look at, as we plan for the LRT, as we plan for uh, just the different varieties of mobility in our community, that we have to make sure that everybody respects everybody's right to get to their destination safely. Uh, another issue now that the weather at least seems to be improving <laughs> towards summer would be um, the intervention teams that are being formed to deal with homeless encampments in Hamilton. I'm wondering what progress has been made. What can we expect to see? I think great progress has been uh, made in this. And, and as I spoke often at the Community Safety and well, Wellbeing Plan table, uh, such an important group of people in our community that are looking at making our environment better. This is about social development. And so what we did, and we had this opportunity to look at our Community Safety and Policing Grant, and we've been very fortunate working with our ministry. We received $8.2 million for us to do better work in crisis response. But what was really key about this particular year is we got 1.4 million dollars that will 100 percent go to partner support this is not to support more policing this is to make sure that we have the ability to truly articulate what is the role of a police officer when you're dealing with homelessness harm reduction poverty mental illness this takes us from being in the crisis into what is so key, getting our partners at Wesley, at Interval House, at the YMCA, getting them in the Hamilton Indian Region Centre, getting them to give the support to the youth, to the people in need, to get the counselling and do the risk intervention, and more importantly, the prevention that will help us change the channel on this troubled problem in our community. Has there been specific training with uh, police officers who might be involved with these intervention teams? Um, Absolutely. We Thank you, Sean. And, and that's something that we can be very proud of here in Hamilton Police. Uh, our crisis intervention um, training, our ability, as you know, we have a, a very robust mobile crisis rapid response, our social navigator program, working with deputies Hamilton and deputies Diodati. This command team has expanded our role with social navigator. We put more resources in there to get people the needs that are present at the time. Those living rough, 
that, that don't need to be in our cells. They never need to be in custody. They need their assistance in stabilized housing, addiction services, and others to look after their long-term needs. We have absolutely amazing team. The RIST model and the Rapid Intervention Support Team and that support for our community partners allows us all to work collaboratively and do a better job together. We're on the line with Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen. If you have any questions or comments for him, you can give us a call at 905-645-3221. I'm wondering if some of this preparation for the warmer weather and the potential for uh, encampments again in parks across Hamilton, have you met with members of the Hamilton Encampment Support Network? Absolutely. Angie and their team and and the work that we're doing with the city is so important. And that work that that has come out now in their encampment team, but working also with those who are trying to do other layers of it and the the coalition, as you speak of. No, they have not come forward to assist us. Again, we understand the need to assist people, but we have to also work within the, the framework of the encampment team protocol and and working with our city, working with our wards to manage it. You are right, Shauna, the temperature is starting to peak and and what we will see is we'll see that growth, but we need to get these people services immediately. And again, those who are critical of what is in place, sit down, talk to us, let's look after it. If the need is to help the person who's living rough, then we all agree that we have a, a joint responsibility to do that and we can do it together. We don't have to oppose each other because working with our partners, we're going to get a better product for those most in need. The service is in the process of forming, uh, formulating rather a new strategic plan, um, and you've been inviting input. Uh, are you considering submissions from the Encampment Support Network and from Hamilton's LGBTQ2S community? Yeah, we, we have done reports, and we've had McMaster give us those reports with regards to us doing better. Um, I think you've heard in our recent update in the Bergman report, uh, we've had some amazing opportunities to work with it. Uh, Rebecca Morin, our 2S and LGBTQIA um, um, liaison officer, has been working with the LGBTQ Advisory Committee. Uh, these are things that we're working on. We want to work in a collaborative fashion. We're trying to find a facilitator to help us work and do better work in that area. And those focus groups in the community, they're all part of it. And the other thing we ask, Shauna, and what a great way to come back to what will be our actual call out to make sure people can come to the virtual town hall next week at 7 p.m. Wouldn't it be great to have those who are also opposed to some of the direction of policing to have their their views heard, to listen to what they have and their alternatives? Because again, in the whole conversation about detasking policing and detasking our role, it is important to understand that to have a safe community, we have a role. We have a core function within our community. And just because everyone knows 911 doesn't mean we're always the right resource to respond to the problem. Uh, Chief Bergen, we have a caller on the line. We're going to go to Frank, who has some questions about one-way streets. Frank? Yes, good morning, uh, Chief and Shauna. Um, as a long-time Hamiltonian, um, and looking past, you know, the growth of the city, and what we've done here um, in, in the street uh, running uh, uh, within the city, uh, I have to ask you, in your professional opinion, being in the, you know, the profession that you're in all these years, what is your your feeling on one-way streets? Now, I'm leaning towards the incidence of people getting caught and maybe not the hit and run so much, but just being in the way of traffic. In the instance where, tra- where traffic's always going one way, now, you know, you, you, tell, you tell a young child to look both ways before they cross the street. That, that, that tells a story of being cautious. 
but in your opinion, do you think that you know people are, are rampantly on the go day in, in distances and and they're they're used to speeding a little bit more if if I could give them that little bit of an allowance. What do you think that do you think that one way streets in a municipality could be entering as more of a hindrance to the pedestrian uh, pedestrians of people living in in these crowded areas and, and and into streets where they have they're bordered by long tall buildings? I'd like to re- your your reaction on that. And I'm going to ho- hang on here and listen to you on, on online. Okay. Thank you very much, Frank important that part of the role of the police in this conversation, as I've said, is education and enforcement, but it's the evaluation of our our top 10 collision intersections. And and right now, I can be quite honest in letting you know that that major through affairs of Main Street and King Street at Dundurn, those are top two that are in our community. But that evaluation is working with the city. It's working with our engineering department. We've seen the example of the conversions of John Street. We've seen the conversion of James Street and how that changes the neighborhood. The reality is hearing that the city has committed to changing the truck routes in the downtown core. Shauna spoke about Victoria, and Victoria is so important. You talked about it, Shauna, in the afternoon. Look at it in the morning as everybody's going up to the north to work into their communities of, of, of the steel mills, etc. So, Frank, you've got a very good point, and that point is being driven every day at the city level to make sure as we make designs. The other part, Frank, that is important is as we look at the... Um, the development of the LRT, and we look at that whole corridor in the downtown core, this may be an opportunity to look at how then does Maine survive? How do we divert some of that attention out of that area, which will be rapid transit, but more importantly, pedestrian friendly, uh, which they're trying to do along King Street as well. So, Frank, you're absolutely somebody who should be at the table and there to voice your concerns and also participate in our strategic planning. I appreciate that question. Uh, Chief Bergen, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to touch base with you on something that's happened both here and in Niagara, and that's social media-based investigations. There was a, a post about some rumors that a serial killer might be at work in connection with some missing women cases in Niagara this week. Turned out to be a rumor echo chamber of a possible knife attack at some schools there. But I'm wondering, what kind of a drain on resources do these investigations cause? The drain on the resource, Sean, is, is not the issue because we have to we have to investigate. We have to understand it. Uh, Shauna, what's quite interesting is we'll be having an impact now on our next generation 911 where we now will be taking calls for texts and we'll be taking videos, etc. So we have to respect that social media is a platform. The reality in this particular case, what's so key about this is we encourage anybody who's using social media to make sure they also contact the police and and make sure that link. We monitor social media. We're aware of it. In this particular case, um, it it might have, you know, not necessarily aligned with the conversations that are occurring on with Niagara and, and the Hamilton Police Service as well as Halton. And therefore, we made sure that in our investigations of missing people, we want to make sure that anybody who has any information that they come forward and they feel comfortable either on Crime Stoppers anonymously or they can call directly our missing person coordinator or the detectives involved. But we don't discount that all information is important. We just have to make sure, to your point, that echo chamber doesn't take over and, and heighten the fear when, in fact, everybody, again, has to have their eyes wide open. If you see something, say something. Allow us to make sure these people can come home safely. Families are impacted, much like pedestrian deaths. When there's a missing person or there's suspicion of activity and criminality, it does impact everybody every day. 
Chief, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Shauna, and have a great day. Enjoy the sunshine. (laughs) We'll try. Uh, Just a couple of reminders. There is the virtual town hall for Hamilton Police coming up on April 27th at 7 p.m. As well, they are reformulating a strategic plan and they're inviting input. You can get information on both of those uh, possibilities for your say on the Hamilton Police website. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The provincial election in Ontario hasn't officially been called yet, but it has been underway for some time now. Promises and platform announcements just about every day. In fact, I think there's one going on right now from the Liberals just as we're speaking. A new Ipsos poll done exclusively for Global News shows that if an election were held today, the PCs would get about 35% of the vote. The Liberals, 32%, and uh, the uh, NDP would probably get around 23%. Sean Simpson is the vice president of Ipsos and explains what he thinks the results are saying. It really means that uh, uh, the election is still up for grabs. And I think a lot of that has to do with the relatively uh, unknown leader in Stephen Del Duca. Uh, some voters may be looking for an alternative to the Ford government, but they don't quite see it. They don't quite know who that is. They know Andrea Horvath, but, you know, they may not want to vote NDP. And he also has a few thoughts about what's notable in this poll. What's notable about this poll is the amount of movement that we've seen in popular vote since just last month. The uh, Tories are down, uh, the Liberals are up, the NDP are flat. But what was a double-digit lead for the incumbent Tory government is now quite a slim three-point lead for the progressive Conservatives. John Best is the founder of the publication The Bay Observer. He follows politics very closely probably with a big bowl of popcorn, and he joins us right now. Good morning, John. Good morning, Shona. I can't eat popcorn anymore, but uh, the rest of it is true. (laughs) Well, as I mentioned, the uh, provincial election race is tightening. The Liberals gaining ground on the PCs in the poll that uh, was commissioned by Global News, uh, done by Ipsos. Is there a danger of political burnout by the time June 2nd rolls around? I don't think so, uh, because... um, uh, th- this is a, a really big election in the sense that it's uh, it's going to be the the first uh, I don't want to call it post pandemic election, but certainly getting towards hopefully the end of it. Um, the the poll you just uh, cited is uh, very similar to the Abacus poll. It had uh, the PCs at thirty six, the Liberals at thirty two, and the NDP at twenty three. The interesting thing about the Abacus poll was um, that Ford, uh, even though the numbers on the voting intentions didn't favor him, he was far out in front in terms of uh, how uh, voters viewed him personally. 41% liked him, 31% for Andrea against, in her case, against a 30% negative. So really a a one-point positivity. And then Del Duca had... uh, actually a negative rating of uh, 22% like him, 27% not. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I can't recall seeing polls where the voter intention and the favorability of the leaders was uh, so um, diverse. That is a very interesting situation here. And I think it's something that people have been saying about Stephen Del Duca for some time. People just don't know him. No, they don't. And um you know, uh, to be honest, he's uh, he's really going to have to up his game, I think. Uh, he was in town uh, earlier this week uh, 
uh, at a at a rally, and uh, he he really uh, to to say that he is not charismatic would would probably be an understatement. He uh, he really does have a very very um, I don't want to say robotic, but he really uh, just doesn't have a lot of energy in in the way he. Uh, he addresses voters now, and you know, at the end of the day, these elections increasingly are are based on, frankly, television and media, and and more about their ads than anything else. So it's going to be interesting. Number one, um, even though they're coming back in the polling, how much money uh, do the Liberals have uh, locally? They think they're a, a factor in, in three of the ridings here, which is uh, which is quite a change. Uh, I mean, we know obviously Hamilton East Stony Creek is wide open now with uh, with Paul Miller running as an independent, but they think they have a shot in uh, uh, in the Ancaster Dundas Hamilton West riding as well, and I'm not sure where else. But uh, it's uh, you know. I, I think it, I think at the end of the day, uh, this campaign is really going to be important uh, because people are going to get a really good look at these leaders, as particularly Del Duca. Well, and uh, so much of this, as you were mentioning, is the media and social media game, um, and who can play best to those platforms. Uh, because what might work in in one uh, area, uh, one medium may not work uh, as well on the other. So you need some pretty good teams that are pushing your message and your personalities out there. Yeah, I, I think the other thing with the, with this most recent poll um, is uh, for the last couple of weeks, uh, Del Duca has really been out there. He's been in the news almost every day. He's made a, a number of promises, uh, uh, the handgun ban and, and some other things. Uh, whereas Ford has been relatively quiet, and I, I think the reason for that is that there is a budget coming out next week, and, and I think they're kind of marshalling all their uh, resources uh, for the budget, and uh, that that certainly will be, we, we just know without even seeing any of the budget that it's going to be filled with uh, all sorts of promises, so I think that's part of the, uh, may have some influence on where these polls are. Uh, is just the relative quietness of, uh, of Ford and his people for the last two or three weeks. Well, yeah, I mean, we've got uh, so many tastes of what might be in the budget because we've had so many uh, pre-budget announcement, pre-election promises. Uh, I think the tally so far is about $10 billion in counting. Yes, uh, interesting. Now, I don't know whether that has been factored into another story that came out uh, last uh, in the last couple of weeks suggesting that Ontario is on track to balance the budget in the next two or three years. Uh, very surprising when you look at uh, some of these promises that have been made. So I'm not sure whether the the budget balancing uh, prediction was made before these promises were announced or not. But uh, I, I think it was I think most people were surprised to think that Ontario would balance its budget that quickly. Um, especially since the federal budget doesn't look like it's going to get balanced for until the end of the decade. Well, I think that would depend on how closely people start looking at the balance sheet that is put forward on some of that. I mean, a balanced budget that quickly when we're experiencing the kinds of financial pressures that we are right now, not just in Ontario, but really around the world. Yeah, it's it's a very uncertain time. Uh, we're we're facing uh, terrible inflation right now. We're record inflation. Haven't seen anything like this in in decades. And 
it's it's a bit of an uncertain time for any government but i think at the provincial level there's an understanding that that you know the a provincial government is not typically responsible for the national economy so i not sure how much of a play that's going to get in in this campaign. Yeah. The Liberals, uh, as you mentioned, um, have ac- uh, proposed more action on things like anti-racism, including more diversity in police hiring um, and uh, this whole handgun ban thing. Um, are those issues that are really going to capture people right now? Well, uh, the Liberals are, are trying to get back the seats that they lost in Toronto to the NDP. I mean, they were wiped out virtually in Toronto, which has always been a liberal stronghold. So a handgun ban definitely probably resonates in uh, in in Toronto. Uh, and that's where I think that promise is largely aimed. Um, banning handguns uh, is, is fine. Um, but I think essentially, all it does is uh, leave the illegal handgun still in the hands of the criminals. But still, I, I think in Toronto, where they've had so many shootings, there's shootings every weekend, uh, a lot of a lot of violent crime there. That that that's where that promise is aimed, and uh, we'll just have to see whether people take it seriously or not. The um, you know the diversity on police forces is is a is it certainly a good move, but it's. It's not clear to me how a provincial government necessarily mandates that since, uh, you know, the police uh, services are all have local governance. But, um, you know, certainly uh, more diversity on police forces is, is a good notion and it's not going to offend anybody, I don't think. Well, just getting back to the proposed handgun ban, uh, that was one of the platform announcements from Del Duca this week. Um, we've had those promises before. We've had the usual pushback of, you know, all you're doing is banning legal guns as opposed to uh, those that come into the province illegally. We've we've heard all of this before and there's never really been any action. No, it's uh, and uh, I think on um, on this program earlier this week, uh, they were interviewing a journalist uh, from the National Post who essentially said uh, of all the announcements you could make, uh, why would you make that announcement? And and my my sense of it is, it's not going to resonate province wide. But uh, if you're being strategic, uh, I, I think it it would have some resonance in Toronto. And I'm I'm guessing that's why he he made the announcement. Well, and the Liberals have always done fairly well in metropolitan areas. They have, and and certainly if if the Del Duca is looking at where he is in the polls, where he's neck, not neck and neck, but very close to for the, the obvious place for them to win is, is where they, in some cases, uh, fairly narrowly lost in the last election. I, I don't think anybody ever believed that the Ontario Liberal Party was a seven seat party. That's not sort of the natural uh, course of things. So uh, back to these polls, uh, what you're really seeing is a little bit of a rebalancing of of normalcy in in some sense that uh, the liberals are are regaining some of their strength. I guess for Ford, uh, his his biggest issue is hoping that Andrea comes up a little bit because uh, the gap between the liberals and her would uh, suggest a minority government if if the election was held today. Mm -hmm. But at least a government. Yeah. Yeah. Well, except um, we saw what happened in Ottawa, and I'm not sure that the liberals and the NDP would would if they between the two of them have the most seats i think there'd be tremendous pressure for them to uh 
um, to vote the conservatives out and form some kind of an alliance. If we could just cycle back to the Ipsos poll that was commissioned by Global News. And just as a reminder, we're speaking with uh, John Best, the founder of the Bay Observer. Uh, And in that poll, we heard that it was basically 35% support for the Ford Tories, uh, 32% support for the Del Duca Liberals, 23% for the Horvath NDP. And I think uh, the Green Party is around 5%. I, I, I think a lot of people really like Mike Schreiner, who's the leader of the Green Party, but they're not willing to to put their vote there just yet. I was surprised as to how close that was at this point, going into the election. Well, yes, uh, you know, I, I think uh, it, it, we're, what we're seeing are, are people are kind of parking their their votes and their opinions right now. Um, I mean, that'd be quite an accomplishment if, if Del Duca, if the actual election were held and he ended up with thirty two percent of the vote. That's that's a tremendous accomplishment, uh, given given where they're coming from. But we still got a campaign, and um, of of the three, uh, certainly Ford. The interesting thing about Ford is that his his approval ratings were at twenty eight percent last year. Now, mind you, that was in you know a very bad year in terms of pandemic and a whole bunch of other things. But he's up to forty one percent now, um, and and his likability factor uh, i mean there's a, a large group of people that hate him uh, but he i think he's a, he comes across i think as a warmer person than either of the other two leaders and uh, so i think the campaign's really going to be important uh, do you think, you know, there are some people who feel that uh, the dropping of mask mandates and not doing as much testing uh, is all trying to put onto a back burner uh, some of the more contentious issues with regards to the Ford government's response to COVID. Do you think that that is having an impact if that's working? Well, I, I, I think he uh, took a bit of a gamble uh, that... Uh, you know, by lifting the math, the mandates, and then almost immediately we started seeing the COVID numbers going up. Uh, luckily, um, with less severity because the the uh, intensive care numbers are not rising the way the uh, you know the hospitalization numbers and the and the and the case counts. It's a bit of a gamble. Uh, he's looking ahead to uh, the election date in June. Uh, we, that gives us the rest of April and, a, and a, hopefully a warm month of May, where you know that'll tend to dampen down uh, the cases. But if if there had been a, a tremendous outbreak of COVID as a result of those mask mandates, he he was vulnerable on that issue. So I, I think it was a, a bit of a gamble, and and we still don't know how it's going to end up. Although some of the science table. Uh, data seems to suggest that um, that maybe things are tapering off. And if that's the case, then maybe the, the picture looks quite a bit better on June 2nd. But a, a bit of a gamble, I would say, to, to remove the mandates and risk uh, another serious outbreak right around election time. There was something that happened in the last couple of days that I wanted to get your opinion on. And that was kind of airing a bit of uh, dirty linen, if you will. Toby Barrett uh, from Haldeman Norfolk, who was not going to be running for re-election for the Tories, had a few comments about the person who is going to be running under that banner in that writing. And that's Ken Hewitt. And they were at odds about a few things. And uh, I was kind of surprised to see that he was commenting. I thought that was not well handled. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that Barrett did step down voluntarily. 
that he wasn't pushed out. And um, certainly he had, uh, he could have expected after the number of years he served that, that riding that, that he'd be able to make his own announcement and then there'd be an orderly, um, uh, you know, uh, selection of Hewitt. Um, so I, I think that was a bit of a stumble, really. And, um, the, the, you know, I think, I think Hewitt uh, jumped offline a, a little quickly. And uh, I, I, th- I, I have some sympathy for Barrett uh, for, you know, he's been a, one of the longest serving members of that caucus that, uh, you know, that just common courtesy would dictate that he gets a chance to make his own announcement. So I don't blame him for being a bit peeved. <laughs> I don't think it'll change the outcome in that writing. That writing, that writing is is so uh, conservative and has been for a long, long time. So I, I don't expect it's going to change the outcome of the uh, of who ends up. I think Mr. Hewitt is in probably pretty good shape uh, in the coming election. No, I, I agree with you. That's not really one of the uh, the writings that I'm going to be keeping an eye on uh, in no. this area for me. Hamilton East Stony Creek. That at least looks kind of interesting. It really does. Um, with uh, with Jason Farr jumping in for the Liberals, you've got somebody with a lot of name recognition, um, a lot of experience. I watched his nomination uh, event, and uh, you know, Jason, having worked in radio for the number of years that he did, uh, there was no dead air. Uh, he. <laughs> He, he really expressed himself very well, and, um, you know, he's going to be good at the door. And uh, so he's a, he's a formidable candidate. There's no question about it. It was interesting that, that not only did Paul Miller show up and watch the event from the parking lot, but uh, Neil Lumsden apparently was in the background uh, watching the event as well. So it's, it's obvious that uh, Farr's candidacy is being taken seriously. Um, and, but with Miller running his own campaign, uh, it's not great news for the NDP. Uh, the question is who benefits? Uh, do people see the NDP and the Liberals sort of drawing from the same voter pool? In, in which case, uh, it's not a conservative writing, but Neil Lumsden is pretty well known. Uh, it's it's going to be fun to watch that race for sure. One of the most interesting races in Ontario, I would think. Well, and Farr and Lumsden know each other, if I'm not mistaken. Jason Farr at one point, and it might have been during the Neil Lumsden era, uh, was uh, an announcer for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. So, you know, yeah. politics does make strange bedfellows sometimes. Yeah, it does. Uh, well, and, and in the same thing, the, the uh, NDP nominee, uh, whose father is the NDP Writing Association president, was a very close friend of Paul Miller. And, uh, you know, and defended Paul Miller uh, when when there were a number of uh, controversies and suddenly um, it's his son that's now running and uh, apparently the friendship has come to an end. Well, and Miller still has a lot of support within the Steelworkers Local 1005. Yeah, this isn't going I don't think this is going to be a typical one where the where the incumbent runs as an independent and gets clobbered. I, I, you know, it's going to be tough to see him win that seat uh, with the division, but he's not going to, you know, he's going to get um, some, he's going to get some votes and, uh, you know, it, it's, he's going to have a following because he, he, he won that writing four times by very, very comfortable margins. So there's a lot of Paul Miller fans out there that don't quite understand. It was never clearly 
fully stated exactly why he's out of the party. It's not like it was a personal scandal of some kind. It's uh, something about um, a website or is he or is he not retweeting something uh, that has a racial connotation. So there's no clarity as to why he was booted, uh, other than we know that he and Andrea Horvath hated each other and had for years. But uh, beyond that, there's no real public stain on the guy. And so I think he's going to be a factor. John, it's always interesting to hear your views on on politics and provincial politics. There's a reason why they call it the Bay Observer, because you observe these things very, very closely. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Shona. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may have thought that you had a handle on buying a used car in Ontario, but the landscape has changed. In particular, buying that used car. That's the focus of a segment of Global TV's current affairs show, The New Reality. It's called The Road Ahead for Used Cars, and it airs at 8 tomorrow night. Uh, Host Mike Drolet is on the line with us now. Hi, Mike. If you think bitcoins make your head spin, the economics of uh, the, the car world will do the same at this point in time. It's amazing to me how much things have changed in terms of trying to buy a used car. Um, apparently, you can buy one online and it just shows up at your house. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the new way. I mean, everybody's had to adapt to these different businesses. Uh, you know, customers weren't comfortable going into showrooms. So, uh, you know, what's the next best thing? Well, bring the cars to them. So dealers have started going online more so than they ever did before. They you know, put their inventory online, but now they're doing sales online. And there's, you know, another, there's a company called Clutch Canada, which is like Carvana in the States. And, uh, and they'll bring the car directly to your door. Everything is online. They take a million pictures of it, make it as transparent as can be, and deliver the car. And, uh, you know, it could very well be the future of car shopping. But how do you know you're not getting a clunker if you don't drive it first? Well, I mean, that's the thing. And, uh, you know, younger, the younger generation are happy with that. They believe what they see online and they trust it. And, you know, and, you know, you have to trust the company to be able to be, if they say they're going to be a transparent, I mean, that's, that's where the, there's a leap of faith there. And, uh, and, and that's sort of the issue. But I mean, right now it's, it's an interesting market because these, these companies are doing well in part because the, um, uh, the online reach is much greater than say, uh, going to just your neighborhood dealer to try to find vehicles. I mean, you might look around, you go, there's nothing around me. But when you go online, all of a sudden the geographical area increases exponentially because you can find cars all over. And right now that's kind of what you have to do because supply is so incredibly low. Why is it so low? Well, it, everything's connected, right? I mean, if you go, you start with the, the new cars. I mean, you think, oh, well, we're talking about used cars. Well, no, you have to start talking about the, the auto manufacturers during the pandemic, I mean, they couldn't get microchips at first. And now because there's, you know, the war in Europe and the pandemic and uh, trade wars with China, you know, people aren't getting these, the automakers aren't getting the parts that they need. So they're not supplying the dealers and the dealers, a lot of them have their lots are just empty. So you think, well, how does that impact used cars? Well, the one of the main places where used car dealers get their inventory are from leases that have been given up and from rental car companies who are turning over their fleets. If they don't have vehicles to go into, well, people aren't going to give up their leases and the rental car companies are going to hold onto their cars. So there's just fewer cars out there. And as a result, I mean, supply and demand, it's, it's economics 101. If you don't have a lot of supply and demand is super high, 
And right now, there's, they, they, it's estimated there's about 2 million people in North America that are in line to buy a car. That's crazy. And there's just not enough supply to satiate that kind of demand. So prices are going through the roof. Well, one of the things I was reading that I, I find really difficult to wrap my head around is that there are some cases now where used cars are worth so much, they're actually selling for more than new counterparts? I don't know if you know, um, I used to read comic books when I was younger, and there was, uh, there was always one there that made me laugh. It was the Bizarro Superman. And he did everything opposite. He was absolutely everything opposite of the regular Superman. Well, that's the way it is right now in the car world. It's Bizarro Car World. Because you can, there's one, there's a dealer we spoke to in Guelph, a perfect example. He had a Dodge Ram uh, pickup truck that he sold in March 2020, early 2020, for $43,000. The guy who bought it drove it for a full year, put 80,000 kilometers on the vehicle, brought it back to the same dealership, and that dealership bought it for $45,000. And then they put it back on the lot because they needed inventory. And then a dealer in Toronto called and said, well, we need inventory as well. And that dealer paid $50,000 for the vehicle. Does that make any sense? Like I said, it's, it's a bizarro world. It and sounds like urban legend. Happening. Yeah, exactly. And the same thing is happening with new cars. Um, it's amazing how many people you can talk to, you can find, who say that you know they bought a new car. Well, they ordered it. It took them three, four, six months, whatever it is, to be able to get it. And when, when it finally arrived, the dealership called them and said, do you really want this car still? We'll actually pay you not to take it because they could sell it for even more. It's, it's really, a, it's a strange world. We'll pay you not to take it? Yeah, they'll <laughs> pay them not to sell it. They'll buy, basically buy it back from them when they haven't even bought the car yet. They haven't even taken ownership of the car. But they're like, we'll give you thousands of dollars so then we can sell it again because we can sell it for even more. Well, I've seen some evidence of what you're talking about. Um, in my neighborhood, there are four or five different used car dealerships um, along one of the major thoroughfares. Mm-hmm. And when you take a look at the at the price that's in the window, um, I'm surprised as to how high those prices are because they're also telling you what the mileage is on the vehicle. You know, I, uh, I sold a car. I had two cars. And uh, when pandemic hit, we weren't using the second car, and it just sat there for a year. And I was like, why, why do I have this second car? So I sold it, and I sold it last year. Uh, and you know, I sold it. It was actually a fair price, and uh, I was happy with the deal. The, the guy who bought it was happy with the deal that he got, and it was low kilometers on the car. And, but when I was talking to the CEO of Clutch Canada, Clutch is the company that, uh, that does the online uh, uh, deals, and he, I said, how much more would my car be worth today a year later? He goes, oh, you would have gotten 30% more. 30% more. So uh, they, the used car prices, they believe, have gone up upwards, uh, anywhere up to about 48% more in the last year alone. That's how much they've appreciated in value. It's like real estate, except it's a car that should depreciate in value. Every, every financial metric tells us that they should depreciate in value, and yet, for some reason, they're worth more today than they were yesterday. Well, real estate was the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about appreciation values like that. But the other thing that I uh, have thought w- would have been an impact on uh, used cars, and in particular used trucks, is the high price of gas. But that doesn't seem to be a factor. Well, remember a few years ago when gas prices were going up, I was absolutely certain that that was going to kill the, uh, the motorhome world. 
you know, Winnebago's are so expensive to gas up and drive around. It seemed to have the opposite effect. People just were happy to go up because it, it's it's more expensive to fly places. It's more expensive to go long distances. So, uh, and, and, you know, real estate was going up so high. So people actually kept on buying them. And, uh, you know, and, and they would go camping in, the, in Winnebago's instead of say, buying a cottage. And the same sort of thing is, I guess, happening now. It's, it's the ga- it, People just pay for the gas prices. You know, we're up at, uh, I don't know what it is in, in Hamilton. I think I'm in Windsor right now, the auto capital of Canada. And it's, I think it's $1.76 a liter here. Yeah, we're about and, the same. Um, you know, it's amazing what you get used to. A few months ago, when it, when it topped the dollar forty, we were all in a panic. And now that it's back down to dollar seventy six, when it was almost at two dollars, everybody's like, "Ooh, phew! Thank, thank, thank God that it's not that it's not at two dollars anymore." And you just sort of get used to it. I think that that's kind of what's happening now. People are just sort of used to the gas prices. They look at it as, well, it's the cost of doing business. If we want to get somewhere, got to buy gas. Do you think part of it is um, at least the the success of the online marketing? of uh, of used cars i mean it's really uncomfortable and it's very imposing to go into either a used car lot or even a new car dealership and try to make the deal for that car and this seems simpler but i mean what kind of risks are you taking well the difference here's a really important thing about the online world you don't have negotiating power they put the car up at a certain price and that's it you can't go in and test drive it. You can't go in and negotiate. That's the big, that's the hang up. You have to be, but you have a ton of information on it. When you do go into a used lot and you see the car, you're just looking at the car with your own eyes and you're hoping that everything is there and everything works. But the transparency isn't, is, is, it's not there quite the same way it is as some of these online brokerages. So it's a give and take all over the place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you're talking about, uh, we mentioned Carvana, I'm, I'm, you're saying clutch is very similar. I know Carvana had these um, giant vending machines where they give you a coin, you put it in, and yeah. that's how you get your car. I, I've even seen one of them. coin as well, right? It was just like this monster coin. It looked like the size of a pizza. It was this huge coin that you would have to go and put it into the machine to be able to get these cars. It was it's, it's the strangest thing. I saw I had never seen it before, and uh, uh, researching the story, I said I found it online, and it's just the strange. Why would you have that? I I guess it's a marketing gimmick of some sort that people kind of like it. Um, you have you go and you put the coin in and the, the vehicle that you bought, and then it just comes out like a vending. It's it's very strange, but hey, you know if it, if it works. It works. I mean, marketing is a funny, funny beast. And, uh, you know, millennials kind of like that sort of thing. Well, I actually saw one of them uh, near Cleveland, actually. And mm. uh, it, that's a, that just seems like a really expensive PR stunt. It, it seems unnecessary. Uh, it's how much would it cost to be able to build that garage, that specialty garage? Because it's not like you can just go buy an existing garage. Because it, it, it's got, like, lifts and all this stuff. It, it's pretty impressive. Um, but, I mean, I guess they figure that it sets them apart. It certainly does. But, you know, they also, but it's so much different in the States, remember? Um, I mean, they can do that sort of thing just because they have so many more people and they have, uh, I mean, the economics are just different. In Canada, we have to, you know, we, I don't, we don't necessarily cut corners, but we just don't do everything as flashy as they do in the United States.
You see, I know we've only got about 30 seconds left. Um, are they trying to um, really target their advertising for online used car sales to a younger generation that may not have the experience of having had a clunker in their life? Possibly. But, I mean, I think they're also marketing it to the younger generation because those are the people to market to. Those are the people that are looking online. You're not going to get somebody who's... Uh, you're not getting as many people, rather, over 40, over 50, who are going to be able to go online and feel comfortable with buying something, you know, for ten, fifteen thousand dollars, and just paying for it online without having test drive it. I mean, I need to test drive a vehicle. I still, you know, I mean, buying clothes online is is tough for me. Uh, I like to be able to go and try it on to make sure it fits because, you know, I'm a big guy. It just it just doesn't work for me. So, you know, it it just the younger generation seems so much more comfortable with this idea of transactions where you don't have to be anywhere near people and you don't have to have that that face-to-face interaction. Maybe they actually, I mean, you think about it, maybe that's what they're looking for because they don't, so much of their lives has been spent online, you know, on YouTube, on these various social media sites, and on their phones, and the human interaction, they're not as comfortable with it. Perhaps that's something. Perhaps that could very well be the reason why it's working. I know you've got to run. I really appreciate you taking time to speak with us this morning. Mike Drolet, is, his report is called The Road Ahead for Used Cars. It's going to be on the Global TV Current Affairs show called The New Reality tomorrow night. Mike, thanks again for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.